Welcome to the Spawn Chunks, episode number 199 for Monday, June 27th, 2022. My name is Johnny, but the internet knows me as Pixorifs, and joining me for the 199th time is Joel Duggan. Hi, Joel. I feel old. <laughs> I mean, that's that's not your age. <laughs> Remember, like the, this is this is a weekly show, so we don't have to feel that right. old quite yet. Right. Okay. Well, speaking of old, though, if you want to go down memory lane with uh, the comedies and the dramas that uh, Pixel Riffs and I enjoy, as well as the sports that we grew up watching, then you should listen to The Render Distance. It is the extended version of this podcast. You can get it at patreon.com slash the spawn chunks, become a member and get access to live show recordings, the extended version of the podcast, and things like the monthly Minecraft Hangout, which we just did this past Saturday. Uh, it will be posted later today on the Patreon page for folks that missed it. But uh, we had a great deal of fun talking with the community about what they've been up to in Minecraft and sharing screenshots and a live chat and all kinds of cool stuff. It was a great deal of fun. Yeah, I always really enjoy these and some some very inspiring stuff. Some people taking on similar projects to the stuff I've been doing, a couple of ancient city transformations, and always really cool to see what people are up to in 1.19. But now it's time for us to talk about what we've been doing in 1.19. Uh, why don't you go first this week, Joel? So this week I have been working on a couple of smaller builds, I want to say, in the, uh, the West Hill build. It is a um, candle shop as well as a, uh, I guess I'd just say a corner house. Like it was nice to have a build that like didn't have a function. I've been working on so many things like bakeries or travel shops or or things that have like specific kind of functions to them. And uh, not having to do that for one of these builds was super, super nice. Uh, the, the thing that kind of struck me the most was uh, I feel like I'm going to have to revisit some of my other I guess, foundations in the world because these are small and I didn't think they were going to be small going into them. And uh, one of the major changes I had to do was uh, the tower on the candle shop. I had to make it larger because inside it was a one by one. Like there was room for a ladder and that was it. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, well, uh -huh. and it's like, well, this, this, this doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to have this. So I had to, I had to increase the size of it. So it was three by three inside. Uh, and it's fine. It it just it changed the the profile of the building a bit, but it still looked so cool. I didn't want to I didn't want to remove the tower or change the footprint. Plus, I'd already built a bunch of stuff around it. And was like, I don't really have the room to to move the footprint. So it is challenges like these that I find interesting and fun. When you're like, okay, you have a vision, and you really like this skinny tower that you had there at first, but you you can't keep it skinny you have to make it larger in order for it to kind of like fit the rules that you have uh going in and the other thing that's nice about these is that it's my first time working with oxidized copper so uh, i had um i had to go make sure i had enough copper for starters i was gonna say then, have you, did you like lay out the copper ages ago and it's finally oxidized and now you're able to yeah. use it yeah yep yeah when it, basically i did that when i decided that copper i had enough copper to kind of like make the block choice but not do the whole roof and so immediately afterwards i went out just outside the, the town and just laid down a bunch of copper blocks and waited for them to oxidize fun fact about having uh the map mod zero's mini map is that i can check the map to see whether the the copper has changed color <laughs> so i don't have mm -hmm. to fly yeah. over to it and check i can just check the map <laughs> that's pretty see. handy yeah, so that, that worked out well. And I didn't need a lot, a lot. I only trimmed the roof of this like nine by seven build. So it wasn't a lot of copper, but I uh, really liked the ability to, you know, obviously uh, hone it back with the axe and then wax it uh, and, and keep it in, in a state so that it has a little bit of orange and stuff going on in it, which is nice. It kept it from feeling too bland. 
and uh, really find it, it complements the dark prismate of the roof quite well and worked in a bunch of other accents, trying again to just include more color in these builds. And it's hard to tell from the screenshots that I've shared, but one of the things I'm trying to do is not just have builds with color, but have the color kind of weave in a pattern throughout the entire town. Mm -hmm. So the bush on one building will be kind of like leading you visually into the green roof of another. And then the green roof of another will come down and kind of run into the garden of the next build. Or even if it's not a garden, it'll be like the light color of the roof will kind of like go down and dip into the light color of the bottom of the next building and kind of create like a kind of like a parabola of, of your eye. It's a, it's an old art technique and it's interesting that i can actually do it in minecraft for starters um and it's been quite effective in making sure that you don't have a gray roof and a gray roof too close to one another that bleed together even though they're two separate buildings when you look at them when you're walking down the street you don't want them to be confused and yeah. so that was the challenge with this uh deep slate corner house that i did uh, which was, uh, at first it was too gray. I ended up with some cool surprise blocks I wasn't planning on using. I had originally planned a dark oak and then like a terracotta bottom, but it just felt really dark all the way around. So I went with quartz and then spruce uh, wood and stuff to trim the bottom of it and uh, worked out well. It was one of those nice things in Minecraft. Where you're like, well, I've got all this stuff around. I might as well just try it and see how it looks for four or five blocks. And if it doesn't, well, I can just undo it. And it worked out that I liked it better than the dark oak, which was the original plan. And then things like the window and the balcony on, on the, the house, like again, just to kind of break up the larger pieces of roof, the big gable in the front was kind of empty and needed something. So at, at first I was trying to work out a window and every time I put a window in it, because of the shape of the building, it looked like a barn uh -huh. and, <laughs> yeah. and, and it just didn't work. And then I, I was just removing blocks to try to figure out what I could do to make the window look different. And I thought, well, wait a minute. What if I just made a door? You know, I could use spruce trap doors to make a small balcony in the front of this. I've done that a number of times. Um, the only disappointing thing is that up on that balcony, there is a flower pot with an azalea sapling in it, which looks cool when you're up there, but you can't see it from the street because mm -hmm. the azalea sapling doesn't get higher than a block. So you can't see it over the railing. Um, and I tried putting a bush and stuff up there, but it just, it looked too big, like a, a meter wide bush on a three meter wide balcony feels kind of over the top. So um, but it was good. Like it, it was, it was fun to have both of these things completed. I think it took like a stream and a half for each building. I mean, the, I should clarify the foundations and the placement of the buildings were already done, but they were with completely different blocks like diorite mm -hmm. and like, you know, some other random block just to kind of show building goes here, but the block choices and the decisions and the details all the way through to the insides, uh, is all been taken care of in a couple of streams. And I mean, it's, it's one of those wonderful things of walking away from a weekend of Minecraft and you've completed two things that you started at the same time, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Al always a good feeling to, to wrap up some of these little projects. And I like the, uh, having stuff up there on the balcony. That's, it's the kind of thing that maybe if you're flying over, you might kind of, it might catch your eye or mm -hmm. it's the kind of thing that you know is there and you have those sort of third level details that are, it's not something you'd see at a first glance or probably even a second time through. It's just there if you know it's there. And it's like, that's, that's, that one's just for me. I like I like details like that in a Minecraft world. It's like when you want to have, like, you build, like, a custom landscape or you build, like, a, a, a small hill, let's say, and you fill in all of the dirt underneath it even though you don't need to. And you're like, well, that's just my own peace of mind. <laughs> that's just for me going, well, I could have put torches in there to prevent mob spawns, but at least now I know that that hill is solid and if I try and dig into it later it's gonna it's gonna have a solid ground underneath my feet 
I, this is the same with the walls. The walls around the city are three blocks thick and they're all filled. Like there mm -hmm. might be one or two I missed, but most of them are, are filled. I don't think the towers are filled, but the walls are definitely filled because it's only a single block. And I find it helps when you're trying to move the wall. If you're trying to adjust things rather than ending up with a weird cavity, you can just it's just solid. You can just figure out how to move it. Um, mm -hmm. And you don't have to worry about, you know, lighting the whole thing. Um, and with torches and stuff like that, you can see the light sometimes through the blocks in, in terms of like lighting things up. But I didn't want the wall to be lit for no reason. Yeah. So there was that. The other thing is that um, there are builds on the other side of the street that are taller. And I might find that on the balcony of the tavern, maybe we'll be able to see things on the balcony of the other building. I don't know that because that balcony that you might look down from doesn't exist yet. Right. Mm -hmm. So like there might be options to, to do that. But uh, but thanks. Yeah. Like I, I like putting those Easter eggs in. Eventually, I think when, you know, members of the server want to walk around, I just think it'd be fun for them to be. I don't want people to walk into any of these builds and think that they've been empty and forgotten about. Like I want everything to have at least a minimal interior, you know, like I did, I did a small interior on that house. It's nothing worth showing. It's just like, you know, table, uh, chimney, you know, bed, like just, just enough to say like, it's got some stuff in it, you know? Yeah, definitely. And it, and it's nice to fill up the world with those details. It's the kind of stuff I've been looking at with having studied occasional, like, you know, games like Elden Ring or Breath of the Wild as, sort of masterclasses in environment design it's like you want to reward the player for going off the beaten path and seeing if there is a certain detail in a certain corner of the world if they don't find anything there then it's sort of a disappointment to them but then yeah if you have stuff around every corner that's just a small detail that lets people know you know the 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 hand of whoever has built this place has been here and you've touched kind of every part of it then that's that's always a more rewarding experience for somebody exploring as well you can also lead people around too right like yeah. you can mm -hmm. you can have candles like candles in, in frames that go up along with the stairs kind of suggest go up the stairs you know like because yeah. there's there's builds up there there's you know little uh mini ender chest block that looks really cool you know like just stuff like that is is fun to mess there's, around with there's but. a great part in late game elden ring where you have to cross a snow field and you can't really see more than a couple of feet in front of you but you meet this ghost and the ghost says ah oh, the lights they lead the way to whatever and then so you find these like little almost tea light candles that are a path that you can follow through this otherwise completely impossible to navigate place and it's kind of like you know you're 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 crossing the desert in a sandstorm you're crossing the snowfield in a snowstorm there's so many neat ways of uh navigating the player around even if they can't see more than five feet in front of them so what have you been up to this week man uh, a few different things. Uh, it's my, my week in Minecraft has been pretty diverse. On the survival guide front, I've taken over an ancient city, as I mentioned, with something else that uh, someone has been doing in the, the hangout that we were uh, we were having this weekend. Um, so I've taken that over and I've started converting it into a survival base, slowly. It's the kind of project that I don't have a bunch of stuff I want to throw in there, and the ancient city might not be the best place to build, let's say, I don't know, a mob farm, <laughs> because mobs won't spawn in that biome. So it's more of an aesthetic project right now, and maybe I'll put in some farms for, you know, dye and things like that. A, a few different things that don't require there to be too many other mobs around. Um, but I decided to work on a few hallway designs. I've done a lot of stuff with Endstone and Skulk. The Skulk vein I have found looks really good if you lay it over cyan carpet. So uh, it kind of blends the edges of that texture in uh, with, with the ground. And so it kind of gives you this weird like spotted carpet design. So I've included a bit of that here and there, a bit of glow lichen on the walls and mixed Endstone bricks in with stuff like Skulk Catalyst and Skulk Blocks. 
and I'm sort of renovating it, but sort of giving my own twist on it. I don't plan on restoring the ancient city just using the blocks that are there, because I find that a little bit boring, and the whole thing is made out of deep slate and dark oak, pretty much, so it's going to look super dark on camera if I do that. So I thought add a few more lighter touches in there, light it with something other than soul lanterns and lava, and we'll see where things go from there. I've, I've made a couple of interesting discoveries along the way, like the fact that the underside of a Skulk Catalyst has a really interesting texture. Uh, it looks super fun. Um, but yeah, I've been doing a, a few bits and pieces like that. I also, because that ancient city is in a mountain biome, and of course you get snow if it rains in a mountain biome, I started a powder snow farm nearby and an ice farm because... I think it's only horizontal distance that matters when it comes to loading those chunks in for the powder snow to form in cauldrons. So I decided to start farming powder snow because I was going to use that for a frog light farm, which I put together over the weekend. And it's a very simple farm design. It just needs, you know, a, a 9 by 9 not 9 by 9 probably an 11 by 11 area with an 8 by 8 grid of, like, four blocks of powder snow spaced apart one block. Um, and so yeah, it, it works really well, and it just breaks down the magma cubes to their smallest size, and then a bunch of frogs that are just happily existing down there, because nothing's going to attack them, um, they just eat all of the magma cubes as they go. And so now I am swimming in frog lights. Um, all of the effort in the farm is, first of all, obviously finding a treasure bastion if you don't have one already, but then clearing the lava out of the bottom of that area... And then moving the frogs in is really the most difficult part. Like, that was a thousand block trip through the nether trying to drag seven frogs on a lead. <laughs> and that mm. was that was a bit of a challenge. Uh, in the end, I decided I was only going to do that once. And what I did was I built a nether portal there, which actually came out inside of an amethyst geode in possibly the best case of spontaneous nether portal placement I've ever seen. Um, so I, I was able to swim out of that into a lukewarm ocean where I was able to breed the temperate variety of frogs, and then there was a jungle nearby that got me the remaining, the white frogs, the, the hot biome frogs. So, yeah, having brought a bunch of the cold biome frogs over manually, I was able to sneak the rest of them in through a nether portal that led directly to the bastion itself, and that saved me a lot of time. <laughs> um, but overall, it was um, a lot of effort going into almost like the prep for the farm rather than the build of the farm itself, because the farm was very, very simple. I, I watched that episode and that that was the thing that struck me was just like how much effort it was to move those frogs around. And I wonder if, do you think folks would have a better time if either a bastion is not immediately available or they've looked and they've just not having any luck, but if they have basalt deltas, like, do you think it would be worth putting a portal in a, a couple of your basalt deltas, seeing where that ends up in the overworld and seeing like how close your three biomes might be to that portal? And having your like have the biome location in the overworld combined with the basalt delta location in the nether maybe dictate you know where you set up your frog farm so that the distance to move the frogs is not as far yeah honestly i think that would be a better approach i think the main mm. the main reason i wanted to avoid that was not needing like i i think the problem with basalt delta is that they're usually so big and so expansive and the magma cubes spawn all over the place that even if you flatten out an area to create more you know 
sensible spawning conditions for them, right? Create a more favorable spawning conditions. They're probably still going to spawn everywhere but where you want them to. And so mm. the the guarantee of a certain flow of them through a magma cube spawner and a bastion was just more attractive as a prospect to me. And you can put an iron golem at the center of a, a pit in the same way that you could with a slime farm, right? You could you could attract the, the magma cubes in that way from a basalt delta one. You just have to do a bunch of spawn proofing if you want it to operate at maximum efficiency and i expect spawn proofing a basalt delta is one of the more tedious things you will do in your world if you decide oh, to do man. it so yeah. yeah like with all of the crags and stuff in there and all of the lava and i just didn't really fancy that i might do it later in the series and i expect it to have an even higher yield if it's based on mob cap and not having to worry about like waiting for a spawner to spin up and and generate a bunch more but if you consider that Normally, if you have a, a spawner, like a zombie spawner, it's going to create like maximum three or four zombies in one puff of the spawner. With magma cubes, that can generate three or four of the largest size of magma cube, which if you get lucky, break down into four medium-sized magma cubes, which if you get lucky, breaks down into four small-sized magma cubes. And so, you know, the maximum you can get from it spawning four big magma cubes there is something like 128 of the smallest ones. So you end right. up with it. It kind of multiplies exponentially. And so the frogs are always busy. Like if you're running this farm, like the frogs are always eating stuff. The minecart is always going. I added a minecart unloader just so it could kind of keep up with the amount of stuff it was collecting. But yeah, it's it's a heck of a farm. And I now have all the verdant frog lights I can shake a stick at, which I'm, I'm very, very happy about. You know, um, that's interesting because when I was watching that, I was thinking like, why does he need like six and seven frogs of each type? But because I'm thinking, my brain was thinking like, well, magma spawner is not going to be that productive. It's going to be productive, but it's not going to be that productive. It's of course, breaking things down like that up to 128, you know, of these small magma, you know, cubes. Do, is it one to one? Like, is it a chance that they drop a frog light or do they always drop always. a frog light when they're hit by a frog? Okay. Always. Yeah. So you're, yeah, yeah. you're swimming in frog lights. Like you've got more frog lights than you know what to do with right now, probably. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, plan on doing stuff with them eventually but honestly it's nice. just nice to have the opportunity to fill a chest in my storage system with them because i i created an area for 1.19 blocks and that's mangrove mangrove roots the different types of mud and packed mud and then i thought oh, okay frog lights are one of those and then i realized how many of these frog lights am i actually going to get if i just casually farm them if i just like drag a magma cube back through the nether in into an area where i have frogs i need to set up a permanent farm for them if i want a decent amount of them and yeah, I'm not going to build an entire wall out of frog lights, but you, you get the idea. Um, so the other stuff I've been doing this week, uh, I had my first experience of RL craft on Thursday. Um, this is something I've been planning on doing for a while. I sort of promised my community a while ago that I would. Uh, but my friends Loy XP, who I do the Hermitcraft recap with, and our friend Bruno Danoy, uh, we all basically did a, a multiplayer RL craft session. Uh, and neither I nor Bruno had ever played it before it's bonkers <laughs> and and it's super fun but very chaotic we spent the first 45 minutes basically dying to super powered mobs and then eventually we ended up dying and respawning each time it respawns you you spawn in a different location so multiplayer is really hard to meet up and find each other again but i ended mm. up respawning next to a village and it turned out that once you'd leveled up 
one of your skills enough, you could get XP just from farming wheat. And so that's what I did for the next two hours, <laughs> because the rest of it was so overwhelming to me. And I found it, like, a little bit miserable just running in and dying to whatever the next bizarre mob was. That I figured, yeah, sure, I'll just, like, I'll break wheat for a little while, see how far I can get up the skill tree, and maybe get some, some interesting stuff out of that. Um, so the others, yeah, they ran around and got attacked by cockatrices and all kinds of other stuff. The, the problem with RL Craft is that the majority of the blocks and stuff, pretty much the same. Like, as far as the mods that it added, it wasn't really going to add anything that changed the vanilla palette of Minecraft, but it adds a lot of things that change gameplay in the sense that they're changing crafting recipes and the progression that you need to go through to be able to use certain types of tools, you need to be certain levels, and that kind of stuff. And it's almost impossible to achieve some of those levels, especially when you're starting out, because the other thing it adds is a bunch of more difficult mobs, most of which spawn in incredibly unfair circumstances. <laughs> so your first night, instead of it being zombies and creepers, it's like 12 foot tall alien things that kill you in two hits. Or like, you respawn somewhere and you immediately get spawn killed by like a dragon <laughs> that just is there, regardless of like whether you spawned it or not, it's just, it just happens happen to live there. So uh, RL Craft is one of those kind of funny because of how nightmarish it is experiences and I honestly can't stop thinking about it in a way. <laughs> it's one of those things that you, you sort of feel like bonds were forged in the fires of adversity when you've been playing this multiplayer for a couple of hours but yeah not something I'd recommend to somebody who likes the quiet life in Minecraft. So if you're Doing that and you're going through these loops and you're trying to establish, you know, something I guess is a bit of a survival base in Minecraft. Like, did you actually get to play Minecraft or did you just fight and die for two hours? Uh, I mean, we did that once we found the village because the village obviously having prefabricated buildings was helpful because most of the stuff, it like, it couldn't go through walls for the most part. So mm. if we were inside a house, for the most part, we were safe. The other problem is it, the, the mobs didn't have a great deal of the mechanics like vanilla mobs do to make them more balanced, like the way zombies and skeletons will burn in the sunlight and stuff will, you know, despawn at sensible rates and that kind of stuff. Most of this was just, it hangs out, it's there, it'll kill you if you go near it, don't go near it, is the solution, more or right. less. But yeah, no, that was that was super fun, uh, but very, very stressful at the same time. Um, the other super fun thing is that Empire's SMP Season 2 has now launched, so I'm going to be playing on that with a bunch of other content creators. Uh, my first time on SMP for about six months, if people aren't familiar with Season 1. Basically, there are 12 of us on the server, each of us claims a biome and sets up an empire there, and the idea is that to minimize the amount of resource farms we would all want to make, one person trades a specific resource. So, you go to one person for your iron, another person for your copper, you can... You know, go and mine that stuff yourself, but if you're making resource farms for it, then it's usually under the control of one person, and that creates storylines and trade routes and that kind of stuff throughout the server. So we're only just establishing that, we've only just started, but we got some cool ideas going this season, so very exciting time. I uh, I tuned into a couple of episodes um, from Creators I Already Follow, uh, yourself included, and uh, you weren't kidding. I think on one of the recent episodes of The Sponge Chunks, you hinted at the seed for Empire's Oh yeah, uh, season two, and uh, yeah, it it is really phenomenal looking. Yes, uh, and uh, and I have to tip my hat. I really enjoyed your intro to your video with the map and the the voiceover and the 
the drawing of the world and the the history and stuff that was laid out it was like really well presented but of course the artist in me is just like i like this illustrated map thing. This <laughs> thanks yeah yeah <laughs> very I, very cool i did that with last season's map using um a piece of software called wonder draft which is really great if you're playing dungeons and dragons for making illustrated mm-hmm. maps of your world and i found out that there's another program i could download that was like a free trial of an app that let you control the opacity of windows and let you click through them so i was basically able to trace the map of all of our biomes and where all the rivers were and stuff and so the map this time around is like a hundred percent more accurate than the map was last time around because i feel like hand drawing it last season i missed out on a bunch of detail so really happy nice. with it so far and yeah. you'll see more of that map as the as the series continues and I obviously was drawing a lot of parallels with the, you know, talk that we've had on the render distance, the extended version of this show about Dungeons and Dragons. And then, of course, you talking about what you're doing, you know, in, in season two of Empires. And I can I can see the Dungeon Master, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, coming out in, in, the, in the season. So it should be fun. Yes, more on that in today's main discussion. But in the meantime, we better move on to the news uh, because Joel and I will talk your ear off otherwise. So naturally, uh, this week we have pre-releases and a release candidate for Minecraft Java Edition 1.19.1. We can assume that Bedrock is updating to 1.19.1 pretty soon as well. Uh, So we'll start with the pre-release. Minecraft Java Edition 1.19.1 pre-release 1 is now available. This release contained a few bug fixes, an increased cooldown for allay duplication, and also contains a new UI if you have been banned for violating the Minecraft community standards. On the topic of community standards and the recent introduction of the chat reporting feature, they have been working on a help article that aims to add some context surrounding that functionality. More on that when we talk about release candidate one in just a second. But the update is planned for tomorrow, Tuesday, June 28th, if everything goes to plan. Uh, So changes in 119.1 pre-1 include that the LA duplication now has a 5-minute cooldown, I believe it was half that previously. Along with the support for reporting chat, reported players can now be banned from online play and realms after a moderator review. The game will show a notice screen on startup if you have been banned from online play. The reason for the ban is shown, as well as how long the ban is valid for. Notable bug fixes in 119.1 Pre-1 include allays from older worlds not duplicating, that's now been fixed, particles produced from allays duplicating could not be seen by other players, loading resource packs was significantly slower in 119, and I think some folks from our community had run into that issue as well, Uh, the world list failed to load after restarting the game and deleting a world, resource packs causing each weighted sound events to duplicate sounds, and a handful of cosmetic fixes to the reporting features, a more detailed breakdown of that is available at the minecraft.net article linked in our show notes. The other link you will find there is to 119.1 Release Candidate 1, which was released just the other day, and it includes a link to a help desk article about player chat reporting in Minecraft Java Edition, which I highly recommend reading if you have, you know, concerns and you want to read up on the, the latest features in uh, the reporting feature. Uh, but on that note, changes in 1.19.1 Release Candidate 1, they've updated the categories for chat reporting to remove profanity, nudity or pornography, and extreme violence or gore in favour of breaking them down into some slightly different categories. The description for the drugs and alcohol category has been updated to someone is encouraging others to partake in illegal drug-related activities or encouraging underage drinking. And the description of the harassment and bullying category was extended with the following, uh, including posting private personal information about you or someone else without consent, also known as doxing. They've also increased the amount of chat context sent with each chat report. 
In terms of technical changes in 119.1 Release Candidate 1, the run command click event for text components no longer supports sending chat messages directly. Only commands are supported, so commands such as slash say should now be used instead. This means values now always need to be prefixed with a forward slash. Uh, fixed bugs in Release Candidate 1 include allays not ignoring items when mob griefing was set to false. So now if mob griefing is set to false, they will not uh, pick up items for you. Uh, bedrock not generating on the new blending border between old and new blending. Players could only be reported using the reporting system if they were present within the world. So if somebody said something objectionable and then logged out, you weren't able to select them to report them. That's now been fixed as well. There are also a few more cosmetic fixes to the reporting features, once again available from the full Minecraft.net changelog. So I noticed uh, a couple of things I'm just going to point out before we get into uh, the meat of the discussion for the news, and that is uh, the uh, texture packs taking longer to load than mm -hmm. normal, uh, something I have absolutely noticed uh, and I think is also affecting the loading of Minecraft for me. And so I'm looking forward to that, that speeding things up. Uh, a bunch of other things made sense. Uh, I do find it interesting that I have a data pack on the Citadel that removes specifically Enderman being able to grief uh, and move blocks by players, but everybody, like all other mobs, can still do it. So if a creeper mm -hmm. blows up, it's going to blow up the build. Uh, but I find it, you know, interesting that there's a give and take there. Like if a player doesn't want any mob griefing, that also means that the LA won't work, which yeah. I think is a strange kind of punishment for players that, again, maybe just don't want to deal with creepers and and Enderman like messing up their stuff but they want to use the LA so I'm wondering if there will end up being a data pack that will come out where it's like yes you can turn off all the mob griefing but this data pack will turn back on the mob griefing for LA you know yeah uh, I'm wondering if that balance is, is going to be put forth by by the community uh, I mean alternatively you could just play with the mob griefing on yeah, I, I kind of appreciate the simplicity of having it all under one game rule but it feels like there should be like negative mob griefing and positive mob griefing if that makes any sense like mm -hmm. the fact that villagers can't harvest crops and sheep can't eat the grass yes. to replenish their wool like that kind of stuff doesn't feel like griefing in the same way that enderman picking up and removing blocks or something you know a ghast blowing you up in the nether and destroying blocks in your nether hub build that you're working on like it doesn't feel equivalent to me at all and so i do wonder if as more behaviors like this get added if we're going to see them break that stuff down via game rule or if they're still happy to just let the community step in and deal with these fringe cases where that behavior is desirable i think separating it out by hostile versus passive mobs is an excellent way to do it right mm -hmm. yeah. i guess the only trick there is that w how do you deal with the ones that are passive unless you aggress them kind of like piglins zombified piglins or or piglins when you don't have gold on like i don't i don't know how you like figure those into that setting but by and large like it's mostly like i don't want ghasts or creepers to destroy my stuff but i want sheep to be and you know villagers to be able to do the, their normal behaviors you know yeah 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 it's it's a tricky line to walk i think and um yeah when it comes to just mobs attacking you it's one thing but mobs destroying blocks of stuff that you've built is is quite another yeah um, um i'm i'm gonna defer to your you know comments on the moderation tools and uh, I mean, all I really have to say, which is a repeat of what I, I said last week, which is that I feel that more moderation tools are almost always a good thing. And uh, I know there's been a lot of hubbub around this within the community. And uh, in my humble opinion, 
those up in arms likely haven't taken the time to really research and read the supporting documents. Uh, and anybody kicking up a big stink about it, in my experience, tend to be the people that are either skirting the line or crossing the line currently with activity that hasn't been policed before. And now there's going to be potential repercussions and they're upset about it. So um, I, I hope that, you know, the folks at Mojang that are working really hard on this stuff are taking the loud minority with a grain of salt and in stride. And, and I, I think that it's not an easy task and I applaud them for, you know, putting a lot of effort into it. Yeah, it's difficult because we have a community that's existed for the better part of 10 years now who is suddenly effectively being policed and they're not happy with that. And it's it's the same way that like the internet is kind of like it's been the Wild West for a really long time and we're starting to see more companies, you know, trending towards like regulating the internet more. And that obviously gets a lot of pushback, and and for good reason. I think it's important to have an active debate on these kind of things. But there is an extent to which I think a lot of people are not looking at this from a particularly balanced viewpoint because they feel like it is an attack on what they have perceived as their freedom. And it's very difficult considering that a lot of people talk about owning Minecraft servers where that's not really the case you know they're renting it from a private hosting company but it's effectively not something that they own in that sense unless you're running it on your own hardware so those distinctions aside um i saw a lot of people again jumping to conclusions about reporting and banning features and uh that prompted me to do some digging and this was all done before the most recent article they published about how they plan to moderate java edition was released uh so once again take some of this more as speculative thinking and an attempt to balance out some of the the knee-jerk viewpoint that was happening about this all being a bad thing right um the why have i banned why have i been banned from minecraft article on the minecraft support center which is two clicks away from the minecraft.net front page it's pretty easy to find has this to say on the subject of bans quote we want players to have fun and be safe when playing minecraft online with others and as such we have implemented moderation features such as permanent bans for the most egregious violations specifically our highly trained moderation staff is looking at the most egregious violations in public featured servers and realms please review the realms end user license agreement personal worlds will not be reviewed end quote so this referred mainly to bedrock edition and the approach they were taking to moderation in bedrock edition before this the article is a little dated i will grant that it mentions minecraft earth as another service that you can be banned from um, but it also shows a date stamp indicating it's been updated as recently as today i checked it before the show and it says you know this article has been reviewed and updated on june 27th 2022 so if that was something that they intended to change or revise as a policy you imagine that they'd have made those changes because they've been looking at or editing that article today so one of the things i want to draw people's attention to is this was their policy up until now at least on minecraft bedrock edition is that personal worlds would not be reviewed when it came to moderation reports and that they look at public featured servers and realms if you go to the multiplayer tab on uh, bedrock edition there are a few servers on there that have effectively partnered with mojang and the minecraft marketplace to be on the multiplayer menu by default so mineplex is one of them uh, there's a few others whose names i forget but basically it kind of says if you uh, you know, you, you act out on any of these featured servers, that's going to be taken as, you know, you're doing that in a public space that is provided by Minecraft 
and that's not okay with us. In addition to that, further down this article, there is a subheading for the question, why did I get banned from a private server, which says as follows, quote, each server is self-moderated and at the discretion of the server owner. If you are banned or suspended from a privately owned server on Minecraft, please reach out to the administrator of the server to appeal your ban. We do not intervene in private servers aside from overt violations of the Minecraft end user license agreement and our terms of service, end quote. And so for what it's worth, an overt violation of the Minecraft EULA would be something like using a hacked client, right? It's like you're logging into a server using a, a copy of Minecraft that you haven't paid for. With all this in mind, if they stick to a similar policy to what they have used so far, and that's an if, I don't know for certain that they will be, um, and I have reason to suspect that things will be a little different with Java Edition, but bear with me here. If they took a similar approach to Java Edition that they've been taking with Bedrock Edition, it's pretty clear they would be ignoring the majority of reports from private servers, and as I mentioned last week, sticking to Realms, which is a product they provide and therefore have a vested interest in safeguarding the player experience and not having this notion of toxicity around Realms being spread as part of public opinion. Um, for a start, the Minecraft launcher, I logged into Java Edition as I tend to do the other day, and the Minecraft launcher now notifies you on startup that profanity on Realms is automatically filtered by default. They haven't pushed that as an option to private servers. It doesn't exist at all. There is no filter on private servers. And uh, it does notify you that you can switch off the profanity filter if you're comfortable with that. They've even removed the profanity category from player reporting this week. So it is no longer the case that you're going to be reported for swearing, or there's not a category for that unless it directly constitutes harassment of another player to a pretty extreme degree. Um, so I can see them reviewing reports from private servers if they're under the categories of imminent harm, as in somebody is threatening suicide or somebody is saying that they're going to go to somebody else's house and kill them in real life. Uh, child exploitation, which is obviously a matter that needs to be taken incredibly seriously, or terrorism, likewise, uh, because those are matters of personal and public security. And at a certain point, from a legal perspective, turning a blind eye to stuff like that is close enough to being an accomplice. Um, I think one of the important things to remember here is that th these already existed as reasons that your Minecraft account could be banned. What's being added here is a formal reporting system that players can do from in-game. So like if you made a case to the Minecraft support team that somebody from your server was engaging in a terrorist act or planning a terrorist act already, that is something that you could report them to the Mojang security team <laughs> effectively. You could do that already. It's just that they're now adding an in-game way to do that so that you don't have to navigate the Mojang website in order to report somebody and so that the chat can be verified using the chat reporting system that they have built into the game now. Um, so I feel like it's it's a matter of perspective here. One thing to note is that if you encountered somebody who was confessing to a crime, let's say, or, or they were planning to do something terrible, or it turned out that somebody had joined your server in order to try and get in contact with somebody's children that they shouldn't have been in contact with, most people aren't going to have a notion of how to escalate that to the correct authorities. And it's something that I I know from my time as a moderator of Club Penguin, where 
there there were several scenarios in which a report was handed on to us that seemed like it needed to be taken that seriously and we would escalate that to management who would then get in touch with the local authorities who'd be in charge of player safety and that's the kind of thing that as an average server owner you probably don't know hand on heart how exactly to do and so it's the kind of thing that with the categories they now have laid out the majority of the time if that stuff gets passed on to mojang as i think these people are plotting to do something terrible then that's something they need to take seriously so i think context is really important in these reports and moderators are going to know the difference between a player telling another player to kill themselves for gameplay reasons and somebody doing it because it's harassment like if you can tell the difference then they can tell the difference and so I think that's that's something people need to bear in mind is that as server owners, like just banning people isn't going to stop something terrible from happening. And I think it's very important that those kind of more serious issues reach the right people. Um, one very important thing to note is that they have noted in this article, there will be consequences for sending false reports because most of the concern I've seen around this feature is about being banned under false pretenses. Um, so naturally i think a lot of the signed chat stuff that they've added in recently the cryptographically signed chat is going to be responsible for validating whether or not somebody's account is who it says it is and so people can't just like hack their way through it and send a report that looks like somebody has said something that they actually haven't um yeah it's going to be it's going to be a matter of them assessing the context of stuff like that and taking into account that if somebody does a ton of reporting and they're not reporting anybody for anything serious there are going to be consequences for them because they're clearly trying to get somebody else wrongfully banned um the last thing i want to say about this is it's occurred to me this week that the bedrock and java pc bundle is likely to have been the catalyst for this because as we saw these were already community standards that they enforced on bedrock edition by filtering profanity having a ban ui and limiting online play for banned accounts and now there is an opportunity for bedrock players on pc to try java if they didn't own it already mojang doesn't want java to look like the place where all of the laws are relaxed and you can do what you want to so yeah they felt the the need to enforce the same community standards on their java realm service as they did with bedrock edition realms and all of this is still developing so it's still something that mojang is taking feedback about and i'm sure we'll continue to take feedback about but it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next little while i've already seen people saying they're not going to update to 1.19.1 and beyond which obviously is up to you personally i quite like playing this game and would like to see some of the new features they add to the game and I've also seen people mention that there are mods out there which can strip the chat reporting feature out of multiplayer servers from 1.19.1 onwards. And I don't know whether or not that constitutes a breach of the terms of service Minecraft are laying out now. Uh, so I'm not going to necessarily advocate for that decision, but it is there if you want to take that step. So um, yeah, I think a lot of the time people are not going to have to worry about any of this whatsoever. And it's pretty clear that each time Mojang receives a report like this, it's not being generated automatically. It's not like you mention, you know, drinking some alcohol and it immediately sends a report saying this person mentioned alcohol on this server at this time. It's much more about the comfort of players in that space and whether or not somebody feels like they are being pressured to do something they shouldn't be doing or you know there is sus suspicious activity going on that they wanted mojang to be aware of 
um it's a difficult field and you know i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to come to come across like i'm being an apologist for stuff that people feel like is not what they want but i think a lot of these decisions are being made with player interest especially the interests of children at heart and i think the key thing here is player safety right like it's it's for people that are you know concerned about this kind of stuff being overreaching mojang is not out to get you yeah uh they they want you to play the game and they want you to have fun that's kind of it <laughs> you know like they're they're they there's so many players that mojang is not interested in the the nitty-gritty of your day-to-day -day life they just they just aren't mm -hmm. it's not data that they need or, or want to, to deal with and you know i i've been on the internet a long time I'm older than some people think i am and one of the things that i employed as an approach when i first got started and realized the kind of stuff that was out there was like aside from some adult language because i'm an adult and i get to use it i don't do anything on the internet that my grandmother wouldn't be proud of mm -hmm. right if, if if it's something that would kind of turn her eyebrow i don't do it <laughs> you know and it's a pretty good rule of thumb and if that's kind of how you conduct your minecraft like if you play minecraft like most people out there you're fine you're absolutely fine joke around with your friends have some fun be goofy as you mentioned a number of times in, in your very well um, spoken piece, Mojang moderators are going to know the difference between you and I buddy buddy joking around about having a few drinks on the weekend and, you know, something more malicious, you know, or something taking out of context. Like they'll, they'll be able to get to the bottom of it. And, you know, for people that are saying, like, well, they're not being specific enough. Well, they're being specific as far as legalities and what they are required to be. And the important bullet points are being very specific. The other specifics are going to come with context. And that's not something that you or I or anybody else can speculate outside of the actual situation being laid out in front of you. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of people in our live chat raising some pretty important points, which I want to address here. First of all, the fact that certain substances, certain drugs are widely available and legally available in certain countries there are specific regional laws around that stuff even between different u.s states like cannabis can be legal in one state but illegal in another that is once again where a lot of context has to be taken into account and while they're not going to know somebody's exact location from one of these reports they can make some assumptions and i think it's much more like if you're discussing recreational drug taking on that sort of level then it's not going to be as much of a problem for a moderator as it is you pressuring somebody else into illegal drug taking and somebody else saying no i don't want to and reporting you because they they feel like they're being pressured into doing something they don't want to do it's it's a very difficult line to walk i understand that and it's difficult to see processes like this from the outside part of the reason they aren't overly explained on the surface is because they know that p players will try and find ways to get around censorship if they're trying to mm -hmm. like if they're trying to work on this kind of stuff we saw it all the time with club penguin where people would substitute in certain words we had to stay really on top of the language the community was using because if they were it's like the smurf issue right you can you can use smurf as a substitute word to mean basically anything and you know you need to make sure that the context is important people are trained to understand how that works and they will keep up with trends in the community and they'll keep up with slang from all sorts of cultures across the world and i'm pretty sure they'll be able to identify the difference between something that's being done playfully and something that's being done with the intention to harm somebody else 
What do you say we jump into some email? Yes, I could do with something lighter <laughs> after all of this. So, <laughs> every time stuff like this comes up, it's a really serious discussion. And I'm sorry if that's alienating to some folks, but hopefully you get a bit of clarity out of it. I'd be curious to uh, hear from some of our parents in the audience, as I know there are some, uh, specifically where so much of this is aimed at protecting children. I, I'd be curious to see your feedback. And you can send that feedback to spunchunkmail at gmail.com. Please use that email address. Make sure you have a clear subject uh, and let us know whether or not you are a patron member in that uh, email as well. That helps us file these accordingly and, and pull them up quickly when it comes to reading them on the show. First email this week is from Enki, a landscape artist member of the community, upgrading old worlds to 119. Hey, Joel and Pix. In episode 196, Joel asked the question if anyone had a super old world and are upgrading to and how they feel about it. I feel that I may have a unique perspective as not only have I just closed two SMPs that were generated in 1.17.1, but the spawn chunks in my personal world were generated in 1.4.4. I take it back. I'm not old. You are. Um, my personal world is only roughly 3,000 blocks across and my projects have gotten much larger the farther that I go. Anything beyond 1,000 blocks and it's 1.14 terrain. However, I'm still mostly building in the first three to 500 block radius. And as a result, I've not generated many new 1.18 chunks because I have no need. I'll trim and update for 119 eventually, but my immediate needs for my projects don't require anything from the update. With the exception of a Star Wars build scene I constructed, I have not touched 118 content at all. I'm looking forward to the updates on my SMPs, not because of 119, but because I've not really interacted much beyond 116. I'm much more of a methodic story builder and not so much of a have to use the new newest blocks builder. I'm looking forward to being thrown into a vanilla world that is basically going to feel modded to me. Although it just occurred to me that skulk blocks would make for a really nice night sky. Thank you for the many hours of podcast enjoyment. Enki falls asleep because the grind is real. <laughs> it sure is. And yeah, having uh, the night sky in mind, I, I thought the first time I saw skulk blocks, I thought that's kind of like the glow in the dark stars that you'd have on like a bedroom ceiling as a child. You know what I mean? Like the lots of little kind of glittery and, and cyan twinkles in there the fact that skulk is an animated texture as well kind of escapes me until i look at a large patch of it and i'm like oh wait no this is actually kind of like glowing and sparkling that way i thought about that when i was watching uh tango tech on hermitcraft do his nether hub this season with all the cool like sparkly you know nether stars and stuff in the distance and you know on a you know, on a larger or smaller scale like using skulk blocks or something like that would be really really fun so I've definitely had some experience uh, with the 116 content because uh, well, that that um, Enki is talking about because I started West Hill around the time that 116 came out, and so outside of needing a few things like basalt and and blackstone to try and do some building with, even though I don't use blackstone that much, um, and and to say a short trip to like another wart forest or a warped forest or whatever to say cool i've seen this now i've really not had a need for extensive nether play i've not gone through a bastion uh i've not done like a magma cube spawner thing um, that's coming probably because feature updates like frog lights are likely going to bring me back into the nether for a stint to experience a little bit more of that content um and i i say that this is not necessarily a problem because i think that for players that are taking their time with minecraft 
at the rate that Minecraft is expanding and including new updates roughly twice a year, I just you're never going to run out of stuff to do ever because if you're a slow methodic story builder, you know, like Enki, then you're just you're fine. Like you're just you're always going to have something new around the corner. On the flip side of that, I can absolutely understand a little bit of the I don't want to say frustration, but some of the feeling of missing out, you know, that you have when you're on a big project, you know, like your Star Wars build or for me, West Hill, I'm continuing on West Hill. I want to finish it. I'm enjoying my time on it. I don't find it a grind, but I'm not building it in 118 chunks. I have a cool mountain next to it, but it's not a 118 mountain next to it. You know, like I I don't have, I mean, there are chunks generated below it. Like I'm, I'm sure if I dug down, I, I'd have more, obviously there's no more bedrock underneath it. I'd have I'd have the ability to go down farther and see what's there, but it's not an underground build. Like it's not a, a productive base. It's more of an aesthetic surface build. So there are some people that would have, you know, advantages brought to them with 118. But for me, like I have to relocate. Like I, I have to kind of go find someplace new to really experience all that 118 and 119 have to offer. And that's one of the reasons why I'm feeling that pull now to do, go do something really different, like a sci-fi area on a mushroom island that's that's generated in 119. Like I feel like I would probably have, you know, more luck uh, and have a different experience that way in terms of finding the new the new things that are in the game. And uh, it's an interesting kind of back and forth, you know, in terms of you know having a world that's that old and on one hand you've got the pride and the hard work that's gone into it and a lot of times you know respect of other players you know when people come into my chat on twitch and they're like oh my gosh like this is huge like how long have you been working on this and i'm like it's been a year and a half of weekends and people are just blown away by that that's a fun feeling it's a it's a really good feeling it's a sense of accomplishment um you know, that, that you've been able to put in the work to something creative like this and, and do it. Sometimes it's a little bit of a hit because I'm just like, what? yeah, it's, it's, it's been a long time working on this project and every block has been placed by me, which is sometimes a little bit <laughs> overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, but at the same time, like I can feel that pull of like, oh man, like I, for example, I watched you do your, um, your empires launch this weekend. I'm just like, oh, fresh new, 119 server with a bunch of really cool creative people and i like i understand like i can feel that draw and then i wonder where i would find the time <laughs> yeah you know? and it's it's a it's a tough call so like it's there are people out there that have these long-term worlds and i'd be very curious uh enki maybe we can catch up in discord about like how weighted was the decision to to close those two smps that were from 117 like those are at least a couple years old right yeah, yeah, no, that's. Uh, I'm trying to think. One seventeen. It feels like. Uh, no, that um, would be that would be a year and a half, I guess. Yeah, like so something along those lines. I mean, yeah, th there's there's so much history to to so much of this stuff, and it's interesting to me when there are players who don't feel the need to go out and find the new stuff right away because the majority of folks I interact with are just like you know, jonesing for a new update. They're like really excited to experience new stuff because a lot of the time they'll play in more intensive gameplay sessions and a lot of their drive to explore the game is, is exploration, is like more motivated in like, oh, let's find the cool stuff and look at it. And I think while I can I can see Deep Slate being really useful for the Star Wars builds Enki was talking about, like I, I picture the Death Star in my head and I get that battleship grey kind of colour that you get from yep. Deep Slate. Um, 
I can see it just being like, well, I'm I'm still working on this. I'm still finishing my build. Like I can I can take my time. The stuff is always going to be there. That's the thing. They don't really remove features once they've been added to a full release of Minecraft. So for the majority of the time, you're not really going to have to worry about there being seasonal content that goes away after a certain time. That doesn't seem like the kind of like the the kind of update cycle that they want for vanilla Minecraft at all. Um and and personally I find that even if I'm working on something else, I want options and while Mojang's additions can often feel like they are holding stuff back, especially on the slabs and stairs side, uh, I feel like they often add something that I've been craving, even if I didn't know it at the time. Like, I think frog lights are a really cool block, and I think they are a, ni a nice solution to people wanting cleaner-looking light sources like sea lanterns, but in a, a variety of colors where sea lanterns can feel kind of cold and don't always suit the, the scene that you're building. Mud is another one. Like, having something like deep slate but without such a noisy texture to it or a really obvious brick texture i immediately wanted to use mud for all of my terraforming projects and so the, there's a few things uh, i even go back to the example of elytra when the hermitcraft server had just had their third season in an amplified world and then elytra would have been a fantastic addition to being able to fly around all of those super tall hills and everything and then by the time the 1.9 update came out and added Elytra, Hermitcraft moved on to Season 4 and they weren't in an amplified world anymore. So it's kind of funny how they keep finding additions that they can make which might be what players wanted all along and might actually appeal to people who are in the middle of a building project but think, you know what, that would be the perfect block to finish this or that off. Like, mangrove wood is exactly what I want to finish off an area that I thought wouldn't look quite right with Acacia, you know? Mm-hmm. And I wonder sometimes, you know, because the developers at Mojang are part of the community, like how much, and we don't know, you know, could something like maybe someone that was, you know, heavily involved in the next mode of tra transportation at Mojang was a Hermitcraft season three fan. And they're just like, man, I really wish I could do something to help these people fly around. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. I can, you know, I mean, complete speculation, but I can, I can see the ebb and flow. Like you can kind of see like the when players get new features from minecraft they then implement them in all kinds of cool and crazy creative ways they also get stuck in some situations mm -hmm. and sometimes you you'll find that the next update will then change the way that that works or add to it or somehow make it a smoother player experience you know i think a good example that they're still playing around with is bundles right yeah. mm -hmm. in terms of people beating their heads up against the inventory wall uh, and then there's a, a, a feature that they're trying to implement in Minecraft that is hopefully not going to solve it, but aid in the management of, of inventory and stuff. And uh, speaking of which, that moves in nicely to our next email from Casercat. The subject is inventory management layout. Hello, Johnny and Joel. Recently, I've been looking into changing up my hotbar and inventory setup. I've said it right for you there. Uh, and I've tried a few different setups, some that I liked and others not so much. This is also an issue with my ender chest and shulker boxes. I'm mainly a builder and explorer, so tips for those playstyles specifically would be greatly appreciated. Do you two have any tips or tricks to find a setup that you like? Is the reasoning behind your hotbar, inventory, ender chest and shulker setup because of your playstyle or for some other reason? This is my first time writing into the show, and I thank you two for creating such an amazing and entertaining podcast. Expect more questions coming your way soon. Ha! Case a cat was slain by a zombie while reorganizing his chaotic inventory and ender chest. First tip, inventory in a safe 
space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I had only took one creeper blast uh, to realize that I hadn't lit up the new area in West Hill very well. And I don't remember exactly what it blew up, but it blew up like a bunch of stuff, like things like trapdoors and bushes and things that are really hard to replace. You know, I was like, uh the first time I died in the survival guide world uh, unintentionally was uh, a creeper snuck up on me while I was in my inventory crafting buttons. So yes, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, do, do your crafting, do your hotbar setup, do all of that stuff in the comfort of your own home. Yeah, I have a very tightly packed little cottage right now that's full of shulker boxes and ender chests and all kinds of stuff. And that's tend to where I go back to get my stuff and sort out the inventory, especially if I'm dumping a bunch of stuff that I no longer need as I'm moving on to a new block pallet, whatever. Um, But in terms of the hotbar, I've actually recently changed the way that I had things set up. And I am guilty of being a slave to habit, a slave to comfort. And I had the typical layout of sword, bow, pick, and then on down the line, along with rockets and food. And you're left with basically like two inventory slots to do something with if you Mm -hmm. want. And I was watching a stream, uh, again, to bring up Tango Tech on the show. uh, and, And he was talking about how he uh, he can identify how a person views Minecraft by looking at their hotbar. And he said, like, if you think of Minecraft as a combat game, then you generally have a sword and bow in your first two slots. If you're more of a builder and don't really care about the PvE PvP side of it, chances are your pickaxe and your, your building tools, like a pickaxe and an axe, are in your first two slots on your inventory. And I thought, I've been doing this wrong for a long time because I have been uninterested and in no need of real combat for quite some time building West Hill. So I immediately move, I still carry my sword and my bow because every once in a while you've got to shoot a creeper or, you know, uh, hack a skeleton that kind of spawned underneath a roof overhang that you didn't anticipate. But the sword and bow are in my inventory, but they're not on my hotbar. So now I've got a pickaxe and an axe and I've got food and rockets. And sometimes the rockets don't even stay there that long. The food tends to stick around. Although sometimes my chat will laugh because like I don't tend to eat very often. Um, but it means I've freed up most of my hotbar for building blocks now. And that's specific to me working in West Hill because I have done the opposite of going to look for new blocks, going to cave, looking for, you know, uh, tough or deep slate and immediately nearly dying because I hadn't rearranged my hotbar and my sword and my bow were still somewhere in my inventory. Mm-hmm. And I've got now three zombies, two creepers and a skeleton to deal with. I'm like, oh crap, I'm going to die here in a minute if I'm not paying attention. You know, it's the same way where people like they, they change their armor setup. Like if you go into fighting stuff and caving, or if you're off doing something in the end, the armor you're wearing is gonna be very different than the armor that I'm wearing because I'm gonna have netherite boots because I jump off of stuff all the time and break my ankles. I have iron pants just because they're convenient. I've got no chest plate because I use my elytra all the time and a gold helmet because it means if I go to the nether, I never have to worry about anything. Mm-hmm. And it's that weird, I mean, now I think 119 or 118, it's probably like leather boots if you if you don't really have that <laughs> problem with if, if if durability isn't a thing if you're doing a lot of exploring leather boots are probably the default you know go to right i would imagine early game minecraft in 118 and 119 a lot of people probably prefer leather boots for a long time in early game before they switch to iron they're probably devoting their iron to pants and chest plates and, and helmets and stuff uh, and weapons and tools i think um, you'd be surprised because i don't think i've ever bothered crafting leather boots to take care of powder snow because i've either not been in a biome where powder snow is going to be a problem i don't tend to build up high on mountain biomes in the early days of the game anyway or i've just gotten used to avoiding 
powdered snow and by like knowing it by sight which obviously isn't a luxury everybody has but i think it's it's easy enough for me to tell the difference between powdered snow and regular if you just look for the snow layers and where they haven't formed that's usually a good telltale sign so yeah like there's there's a couple of different possibilities there but i i think people who say that like joke around that the ideal setup for a player is uh, a turtle shell helmet because it helps you with water breathing gold leggings elytra and leather boots <laughs> it tends to be like the jokey version of like the ideal armor set because it's all of the all of the stuff that has like specialist uh you know functionality behind it um yeah i i don't i don't necessarily buy that at all but it, it's a it's a fun a fun way of viewing the game at least the other things that are in my inventory right now are things like an ender chest crafting table and a stack of scaffolding. And that's just because of where I am and what I'm doing. Um, I The scaffolding probably wouldn't be a big thing if I was on really tall builds. It's more that I'm, I am I constantly have to go up about six blocks to jump on roofs of buildings. And so I find scaffolding is the easiest way to do that. Um, as far as ender chest questions, like, I mean, this is mostly a hop bar email, I think, but the ender chest stuff, I've just got everything in shulker boxes all color coded. And right now my ender chest is like 80% empty because most of them are placed around inside this building cottage that I have where I'm just kind of like calling home base for now. The problem that I have is that I have more shulker boxes and the need for more shulker boxes than my ender chest has room for. Yeah, like I, I, I can kind of see that. I, I'm getting to the point where... I have a surplus of shulker boxes and I'm using them circumstantially a lot of the time. And if I'm not finding places for them to go in my ender chest, I'm finding places to put them that aren't my ender chest. Because I still mm -hmm. like I still like having a few empty slots in there or a few slots with just one item here and there, because I think this is the problem why this is why people are often, you know, more interested in having a larger inventory than they are in inventory solutions like shulker boxes because sometimes the act of taking something out of an ender chest and putting it down and opening it like a chest is less convenient than just swapping stuff in and out of your inventory while it's open so there's there's a couple of different philosophies at work there but um my my hotbar i've realized just because you were talking about tango's philosophy on it my hotbar is set up for caving i think the first uh, i always have torches on one pick on two sword on three so i'm always there lighting stuff up breaking blocks and attacking stuff if it attacks me and then after that i have my bow because that way i can scroll easily between using the scroll wheel between sword and bow and then beyond mm -hmm. that it's the specialist tools which are axe and shovel because you know you sometimes need to shovel dirt or chop wood or whatever and that's like my usual hotbar setup i have food at the end because i can scroll between that and torches really easily um, and again, that's set up for caving. So I, I, I can see the, <laughs> the dilemma there. I think a lot of people have started using an axe as their main weapon instead of a sword, because an axe can still deal damage. If you have unbreaking, you don't have to worry about the durability as much. It has all the advantages a sword has aside from sweeping edge and looting. Um, I only keep a sword on me for looting, really, like just because I don't want to have to grab a different sword when I go to my enderman farm to repair stuff with you know, sweeping a bunch of Endermen and, and getting XP and stuff. So yeah, there's there's a few a few little things like that that I could pare down. Some people like to roll with a trident and have that instead of a sword because it does as much damage as a default diamond sword does. And it's also a ranged weapon, so they can eliminate the bow as well. 
Uh, but personally, I like having something like sharpness that deals extra damage anyway. I don't like having to kill a creeper in four hits. So personally, I'm I'm not quite in the trident gang just yet. Um, but I do think people who bring all of their tools with them, like I've always got a trident with riptide on me in case I need to use riptide. I'm like, I mean, I guess I'm kind of okay with just using rockets to fly and that's sort of it. So I think certain people tend to overload themselves and that as an argument for expanding the inventory doesn't necessarily work for me at all. Um, there's there's some interesting stuff, but I haven't even set up my ender chest properly with shulker boxes yet in this season of survival guide. I feel like I'm using it much more circumstantially than I am as a, a regular, you know, place to, to put specific resources. So kind of curious as to see if that changes as the world uh, expands and grows. So let's move on to today's discussion topic. Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about, especially because it's been on my mind because of Empire's SMP launching, is the importance of storytelling, or in some cases, lore, backstory, as motivation for building. And I think this is something that we can both speak to, because while you're not actively, like, you're not writing a story and creating characters alongside the stuff that you're doing in West Hill, you're sort of thinking about things in terms of who lives here, what businesses do these people require, that kind of stuff. So how do you find that the the kind of story approach or maybe even comparing stuff to real life factors into what you choose to build? So I was thinking about this before the show and I find that I divide my building motivation into categories. I'm not sure if motivation is the right word because I'm always looking, I, I don't need to motivate myself to play Minecraft. Like I'm pretty much always in the mood, but uh, in terms of like what I'm building, I find that, you know, lore and story is kind of one place to start. History is another function and then aesthetics. And the first question, like, am I trying to tell a story? Is there a lore or reason behind why this needs to look or feel a certain way? Most of the time that isn't the case because starting off on the Citadel, there was a lot of, you know, different people in the spawn area. So everybody had their own ideas and it was more about function and more about just like doing what you want and trying to make it look kind of like reasonable that, you know, it all worked together, but that's easy in early day Minecraft because most people have roughly the same materials. So even though they're very different styles, most stuff looks like it kind of belongs. Um, but as I moved on and started to do other things, uh, I found that history was more what was informing how I was attempting to to build something. And it wasn't that it needed to have any kind of like great lore behind it. It was more like I was trying to build something that didn't necessarily look like it was plunked down by the player yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted it to feel like it had been in the world for a while. It had a world building aspect. It, it kind of invites questions in the same way that Minecraft kind of invites questions. We're like, well, here's a jungle temple, no explanation as to who built it or how long it's been there, but it looks old, you know? And so the player kind of can imagine how that's been. And so that's what I was trying to do with my builds was like in employ history. And that's where Westville really comes in. Uh, I have different sections of the town where I thought, well, towns just don't spring up out of nowhere most of the time, you know, in terms of medieval fantasy, like there'd have to be a reason to be there. What's the reason? The river. You know, what's mm -hmm. built first? Probably a bunch of fishing huts and, and people in a little fishing village. And then the town itself kind of builds itself up around the, the river, using the river as a mode of transportation, as a mode of trade. So things that are central to the river are going to be the things that make sense, you know, um, docks and stuff like that. 
the river is such an important thing and i think people tend to forget in terms of that era of history how important it was to have a flowing water b potable water and c water for transportation like there's there's some some really interesting stuff you can do there likewise it makes a lot of sense building a city from that sort of era on the shore of an ocean because it can be a port town for trade and there's a ton of stuff like that that you can factor into it but even just going back down to the granular the kind of player scale stuff i think if you build a house you are telling a story in a sense because you are telling the story of somebody in need of shelter it doesn't necessarily have to be like you you're role playing as such but you know you can get through the entirety of minecraft and many people do i think actually by not building yourself any kind of aesthetic or functional accommodation, you can sleep outside every night if you want to, as long as there aren't monsters around. You can spend the entire time building contraptions that feel very meta. They're not sort of in the story in a sense. They are just like, I want this game to be able to do stuff. But if you're trying to build something that doesn't have a specific function, you're building it because you want to populate the world with details and those details start to tell a story whether you have a story in mind or not. I think that's such an interesting thing about this game, the fact that it's a sandbox and anybody can build whatever they want to. Most of the time those people end up telling little micro stories, even if they don't have an overarching theme for what they're doing, they're telling stories the entire time they're playing. Yeah, I would I would agree to that. I, I think that's probably something I do subconsciously when I'm building, you know, a house in West Hill that doesn't have a function. Like it's not a shop. It's not someone's specific house. It's not the mayor's house. You know, it's not, you know, uh, a, a guard's house. It's ju just a house. Like it's just meant to fill space. But I still want it to feel like it's lived in. So mm -hmm. at some point you have to think about like, what's the day-to-day -day of this person? Like, do they, you know, are is the bed on the main level or is the bed on the upstairs? Like that means that that person has to trek up and downstairs at least twice a day, you know, stuff like that, I think does eventually inform. Um, how, how do you land in terms of when you're building in thinking about lore, but then also thinking about like the function of something, whether it's something fancier, like a redstone farm or something that you're, you know, you're generating mobs with, or is it, you know, is it a build that's just, you know, um, I'll use a blacksmith as an example, just because I've got medieval on the brain, but like something like that, like is, are, are those things that you find you, you go to first or like, does the function comes first and then you try to figure out a lore for it or does the lore lead you to the functional building? Depends entirely on the series at this point, depends entirely how I'm approaching the world, because on survival guide, it definitely feels like function first, like most of what I'm doing is for the sake of having a tutorial about it. So a lot of the builds tend to be quite functional. I haven't decorated a huge amount of my farms. I've done a couple of them, but the others, like I have a cactus farm that's been there since the early days of the series, and it's just water streams with plants, fence gates, and a brick wall around it. And that's it. Like it doesn't look like anything that would exist in the real world. <laughs> and it feels very Minecraft as a result. And one of the things I want to start doing is incorporating details like that into a broader picture of what the world is. And I've started out building stuff for the sake of it, really. Um, I think the main thing that I've done so far in terms of that central area is I built a beekeeper's cottage to go around my honey farms, uh, my honeycomb and, and honey farms. And I think that made a lot of sense. 
unfortunately part of my vision had to be compromised because of Minecraft mechanics, because I wanted to have flowering azalea leaves all over it, but it turned out that distracted the bees' pathfinding and they didn't go to the right flowers to get pollen. So there's there's some areas in which the, the mechanics of the game actually kind of create some friction with the story that you're trying to tell, even if it's as simple as, I want this guy's cottage to look a certain way, right? Um, but yeah, like I tend to build stuff for the sake of it at the beginning especially, and more often than not it has a loose story or some sort of tie to the real world, but I do think when it comes to functional builds, I think of function first unless I'm consciously approaching this stuff differently. Like, I'm, I'm doing something on Empires right now, I'm building a, a farm around a triple cave spider spawner, and I'm like, I can create some very creepy ideas about how come this spider spawner is being used to churn out experience and that kind of stuff and and there's ways you can rope that into a story but if i wanted to just have like a box that the cave spiders go in and i kill them it could be as simple as that i think part of the fun is in giving it its own character at that stage especially when you've been playing the game for this long and you've been doing functional stuff for this long I think sometimes you want to break out of that pattern. You want to do stuff that may not be the most efficient way of doing something, but it feels cool and it, you know, fires your imagination in 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 a way that, you know, lets you think of the blocks that you're using in a completely different light. And I think it provides that mental challenge too. You know, like you could, you know, when I was talking about history, like I've got a medieval fantasy area, which means I have a lot of leeway with how things look. You know, compared to, say, if I was really heavily influenced by Ming Dynasty China and I wanted to stick to that architecture and I was like looking up, you know, real historical facts from like human history. Uh, and depending on how close you want to stick to that, that could create some really interesting challenges. Or like for me with the medieval fantasy area, like if I run into something that like, well, I like the look of that. It looks a little bit teetery, but like whatever, like, it, you know, if you look at fantasy artwork a lot of the times chimneys aren't straight you know like things got, got a little bit of a quirk to them um if you're dealing with a place that has magic then like you can have a floating tower it doesn't have to be attached to things like play a modern video game and see how you know wild and wonderful world building can be in terms of stuff floating or or just being kind of unique in its own, its, its own design um i think for me in terms of the function question like i tend to go with function as a way to help narrow things down. Uh, recently had a discussion on stream about like trying to think of a, of a block to use for new build. And while we always want new blocks in the game, when you mentally are trying to go with what blocks you want to use and you're trying to go through the list in your head, like it's hard. There's a lot, you know, to try and figure out what color, what texture, like what is mm -hmm. going to work well. And I think that by, um, choosing a function say it's a blacksmith say it's a flower shop say it's a candle shop whatever then you can immediately kind of think okay well candle shop feels less necessary and more like a, a a second tier of survival like this isn't this is someone selling something that people need but not need to necessarily survive you know yeah um where they will have to shoe their horse you know but they don't have to necessarily get a candle and i feel like that provides some whimsy it provides some color, you know, opportunities, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's there's so much there's so much cool stuff out there to to draw from. And like just you talking about Ming Dynasty China reminded me like I, I read um an architecture book a while ago that I still have 
I need to go back to, but there was a whole chapter on floors and it was sort of explaining how floors have changed throughout the the centuries and like the different things that you can learn from the way floors are positioned and how we use them. Um, talking about like upper class stuff being like, okay, it's raised off the ground by a certain uh, amount because, you know, the, the different levels of a house meant that you had more and more wealth. Um, it talked about the idea of, um, I think they're called nightingale floors. They're like, you know, if you mount the floorboards on these like metal rings that sit around the nails, they make a sound like that's basically unavoidable if you step on them. And they were used to floor houses of particularly rich people who are worried that they might be assassinated. And, you know, the, the assassins making their way into a room would wake somebody up because of the noise the floorboards were making. That's the kind of stuff that you can even work into Minecraft by putting stuff like, you know, amethyst blocks underneath a carpet in a hallway and suddenly the hallway is making noise. And there's like little design choices you can make like that, which again, tell a story or allow you to tell a story like in the moment rather than it being about a, a history side of things like there's there's so much stuff where function and aesthetics and like real world influences can tie together in in building that's such a fascinating mine of of possibilities i find i bounce back and forth between function and aesthetics a lot like most of the time my motivation in minecraft is to build something that looks good yeah. um but <laughs> i i over the 20 years of being a professional artist, I, I know I'm a very practical, analytical, almost literal person when it comes to my work. Uh, even as a cartoonist, my stuff is pretty tight. Like I don't get really weird and out there with shapes and, and exaggerations. Like I much prefer, I mean, a really good example would be something like, you know, 101 Dalmatians in terms of Disney. Really tight design. Like it looks like people, it looks like dogs. It's still mm -hmm. cartoons, but it's not, 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 not too goofy, you know? And I feel like um, I bring that into Minecraft where like I can cheat a chimney. I can have the furnace inside with a chimney pipe going one way and I could put the chimney on the outside of the build somewhere completely different and not connect them. And it really doesn't matter, but it's going to bug me. <laughs> and yeah. So and so my challenge is usually like, well, how if I put the stove here, that means I have to put the stove pipe going up through the floor, the second floor. And how does that affect walking through the house? And like, do I want to do that? And can I accept that? And in a lot of ways, Minecraft has been an excellent reason or excellent lesson in like, that's good enough, Joel. You have to leave it now, <laughs> you know, yeah. because you just don't have the blocks to solve the problem. And or it, even though you can't see it, like maybe something is doing funky behind that wall and you're just like, whatever, I can't see it. I know it's there, but I am the only one. And the people that are here on the stream are the only people that know it's there. Otherwise, walking through the build, you'd never see it. Yeah. And it takes a lot for me sometimes to walk away from going like, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Like just you know, but at the same time, we're back at the flower pot on the balcony kind of thing, where it's like yeah. sometimes those mm -hmm. details stick around and they're part of the world, and even if you can't see them, it's comforting knowing that they are there in in a really neat way. Um, and like I I think honestly, if your area has a theme, it has a story of sorts, right? Like if, if yeah. it's even if it's got like if, if you've built a bunch of redstone contraptions in the same place if you built a bunch of farms in the same place people start calling that like an industrial district and suddenly it's like well if there's an industrial district that implies that there is a residential district or a commercial district or something like mm. that and and that's how stuff like that kind of grows like the story around it can be paper thin you don't need to think of 
you know characters or have the place go through an emotional arc or have like a a backstory for it or something like that but it can really enrich the experience if you do like my my dripstone cave base is a place i chose to build because i thought it looked cool and i immediately think okay what are the what are the people here for? There's tons of copper in the Dripstone Cave. They're here for copper. And in a way, I'm there for copper because I'm acquiring some of the ores as I dig the whole place out. But to have it feel like a copper mine, it has to have tunnels. It has to have beams and props and lighting. And I'm not doing any of that for gameplay function except maybe the lighting so that mobs don't spawn. That's the start of a history to the place. Um, and then once I started digging the tunnels, I think, okay, they've, they've probably found a couple of copper veins in the walls, and I, I had access to prismarine by that point, and it's got a similar colour to oxidised copper, so I tried that out as though, you know, a bit of exposed copper has been there for a while and is still kind of unrefined, but it started to oxidise, and because prismarine has that animated texture... That made it kind of feel unusual, and I thought, well, maybe that's a different type of ore. Maybe that's a magical kind of ore, and that's the reason that it it changes color. So the, the miners have found another mineral whilst they've been digging around for copper. And that hasn't gone anywhere. It's not like I've led that into a more magical build, but it's just one of those funky little details that you can throw in, informed by the textures the game has, even. Like, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that you suspend your disbelief a whole bunch for. The game makes it look like a more magical material by having a color changing texture in the first place so it's kind of neat that the the game itself can throw inspiration your way in the form of just block choices you might make even even outside of stuff like jungle and desert temples and wondering where they came from i i want to expand on one final thing that you mentioned that i think just grabbed me right now and that is the emotional response and that's what art is meant to elicit is an yep. emotional response and i think that uh, in a lot of ways, you know, that paper thin story can be what is the emotional response of the player or an imaginary person that lives in this world as they walk through it. So as someone walks through your build, whether it's a friend playing with you on Minecraft or whether it's, you know, an, an imagined, you know, person coming in, what is their emotional response to walking through the front gates, to walking down the road, to walking through your mind, to seeing the, the prismarine in the walls? Like, what is that emotional response? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's an excellent place to start for anybody that struggles with story or struggles with like, I, you know, they don't have the time or they just, they feel in general, they don't generally have the imagination to come up with that kind of stuff. Everybody's got emotions. You know, you can all identify with like how something made you feel when you saw it and i think that that's an excellent place to start especially if you're stuck in minecraft start with how a build makes you feel does it you know or how you're feeling like do you want to make something dark and broody because you're currently dark and broody go for it you know like i think that latching into that emotional story big quotation marks there um is an excellent place to start yeah, uh, going back to something we talked about on our monthly hangout, your server mate Alistair is designing a machine that farms pumpkins for him by killing villagers, and it's because he's <laughs> mad at villagers. Um, and and that's the thing, like, that, in a sense, has a story. The story is, I found this gameplay feature that really ticks me off, and and that's okay. And that's that, again, is like a reason for a, a, a redstone device to exist, but is also just you having a bit of fun with the contraptions that you can build in the world and poking a bit of light fun at the fact that villagers are a little bit hard to deal with and and that's a story in itself 
Um, like speaking of emotional response, this is the last thing I'll say before we wrap up here. Um, on Empire's SMP, my current plan is to focus on building up the backstory of the world because I don't like the in-character roleplay stuff as much, but I still wanted to have a way to tie a story together out of everything people are doing and I really want to do some cool building and it gives me reasons to build dungeons and mini games and other structures for the other players to find allows me to collaborate with their stories which they're all telling from the perspective of a central character and telling kind of more actively uh, so Joey Graceffa started off with a vendetta against skeletons and has an animated intro that shows him being like attacked by a ship crewed by skeletons it's very Sea of Thieves um, Jimmy is playing a Wild West Sheriff character and he's building in a mesa and keeps getting attacked by pillagers. And so you build up a vendetta against like a specific type of mob and then I can probably build some fun experiences that are themed around both of those. Like Jimmy's Sheriff character stumbles upon a hideout where a bunch of pillagers are plotting and there's TNT around and like they're gonna blow up the saloon or something like that. And suddenly it's like, ah, the old boys are back in town and he's gotta like ride up there on his horse. You know, you can you can develop some stuff like that around the resources Minecraft gives you, the mobs, the blocks, any of that stuff. And like you said, if it if it brings emotion into play, then it's kind of done its job of telling a story. Um, but we're done telling our story here on this episode of The Spawn Chunks. Thank you so much for listening, folks. You can more, find more information about the show and links to some of the stuff that we've talked about today at thespawnchunks.com. The music for the show is composed by me, and The Spawn Chunks is proud to be a listener-supported podcast. If you're getting some value out of the show, why not consider putting some value back in? You can visit patreon.com slash thespawnchunks to join our community, where pledging at any level will get you an invite to our patrons-only Discord chat. You can listen to the show live as it is recorded in Discord every week, and you can also tune in to our monthly Minecraft audio hangout. You can also get an RSS feed with all of the bonus content that we make for our patrons ready for you to listen to whenever you want. Uh, we're currently at 345 patrons, which is up from last week last week we had 342 so welcome to the three of you who have joined and i think a couple of people even joined while we were recording this so welcome to you as well uh, special thanks of course go out to our content engineer patrons who all help make this show possible thank you hunter 555 jumbo sale and yitz for your support on this episode sharing the podcast with your friends is the easiest way to support the show it's free you can find us at the spawn chunks on twitter and instagram to spread the word but a personal recommendation is another great way to share the podcast you can just tell a friend about the spawn chunks and that they can listen on itunes spotify google podcasts really wherever you can find a podcast we're also on youtube be sure to leave us a rating and a review on your favorite platform that helps spread the word as well you can email the show at spawnchunkmail at gmail.com the rss feed is linked on the spawnchunks.com and the patron only rss feed is on the patreon page that's where you can listen to the render distance the extended version of the podcast my name is Johnny, but online I go by Pixelriffs. You can find most of what I do at youtube.com slash Pixelriffs, where I try to make sense of this bizarre and wonderful game in Season 2 of both the Minecraft Survival Guide and now Empire's SMP as well. I also stream three days a week on Twitch, doing behind-the-scenes work for the aforementioned YouTube series, and I'm the voice of the unofficial Hermitcraft recap, which you can find through a quick YouTube search. Aside from that, I'm at Pixelriffs on both Twitter and Instagram. Joel, where can people find you online? Everything I am doing online, including my illustration and design portfolio, is at joelduggan.com. You can listen to The Citadel Cafe, my other podcast about sci-fi and fantasy entertainment, at thecitadelcafe.com or wherever you find a podcast. This past week, Ryan Murphy was on the show to talk about upcoming games for Xbox, PlayStation, and speculating on what's coming up for Nintendo. You can follow me at Joel Duggan on social media and Joel Duggan on Twitch, where I stream at least three times a week from The Citadel. Thanks for visiting The Spawn Chunks. The world outside is infinite. It's a long story.